Among the family photos that adorn the desk of my office are of two of my girls. They are from a trip that we took to Disneyland. The summer of 2000 was the year which coincided with the final months of my first marriage to Gail. Although our marriage was barely breathing, interestingly enough, for a week, God blessed us with a bubble of time in the land of Mickey Mouse and Cinderella that truly was nothing short, not only of a dream vacation, but I would hesitate to say, but put it close to, the miraculous. I don't know how you have a week like that in less than three weeks that marriage will be over without help. In my mind, it will always rank as the second most meaningful definition of the term bittersweet. I'm curious what moments, what set of circumstances will come to your mind, maybe even over the next few minutes, but certainly over the next day as you have lunch together and sit around the house, of a time in your life that fits the definition of bittersweet. Bitter because it was difficult and painful and sweet because it was divine, literally, and absolutely wonderful. As John's wrapping up the writing of his gospel, he is flipping through his own mental photo album, and John writes of a time in his life that as a disciple of Jesus was absolutely bitter and absolutely sweet. Jesus promised it would be. Specifically, he promised that he would be leaving them. Chapter 20 and verse 22, if you've got your Bibles with you. Now is the time of your grief, but I will see you again, and then you'll rejoice, and nobody will take away your joy. I think that's a very definition of a promise. It's bittersweet. I'm, I'm out of here. I've got to go. It's going to be a time of grief, but I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and nobody will take away that joy. We know when the bitter started. It was with the announcement of one of the twelve would betray him. And Judas did. And that bitterness continues right on to the hearing that he would be leaving them. Nobody was prepared for the fact that he was leaving. We know on this side of the cross that he meant his death. And how, how couldn't death on a cross not be bitter? We've talked enough of the bitter, though, in the past couple of weeks. Shifted a gear here about a week ago, where in John's text this morning also, he has moved us on to the sweet part of what Jesus said. The sweet part of his promise. And for the disciples, it begins when things were a little bit tense in their little hideaway that they were in. And they had a right to be tense. They had every right to think that the Jewish leaders would see them as much of a threat as they saw their rabbi, who they saw to being crucified. They're in a room, not necessarily just mourning his death. They're in a room hiding, hoping to prevent their own. And they don't have a clue what to do next. We don't fault them for that. They don't know what to think about all this. Mary had been to the tomb, and she came back reporting that the rabbi's body was missing that day. John and Peter had bolted out of the hideaway and made it to the tomb and confirmed, indeed, yeah, he wasn't there. The linens that he was wrapped in, they were there, but he's not there. After they left the tomb and went back to their hideaway, Mary swore she not only saw Jesus alive, she touched him. Those words obviously had to be greeted with curiosity. 
Maybe more so than comfort because when John writes this text, the doors are locked and they are afraid still. But like John Madden would say, boom, Jesus was there in their midst. The natural dead body of Jesus had become a supernatural body that didn't require a door or a window to enter a room. Bang, he's there. And before them was the one that Mary had mistaken as the gardener just hours earlier, which is full of meaning. If I can hit us, have us pause on a little bit of a side here. See, there were Jews who knew their Old Testament, just like some of you incredible Bible teachers that are in this room. And they wouldn't have missed the double meaning of Jesus being mistaken as the gardener. Because it was in the garden that the first Adam fell. Remember? John makes sure we remember because in John 19 and verse 41, he writes, At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in that garden was a new tomb in which no one had been laid before. I love that he included that. Because we know early in the story of God, sin enters the world in a garden. And then sin is defeated in a garden. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 5. You see, at just the right time, when we were all still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Just as one person did it wrong, Adam, and got us all in trouble with sin and death, another person, Jesus, he did it right. And he got us out of it. But more than just getting us out of trouble, he got us into life. One man said no to God and put us all in trouble and we did wrong. One man said yes to God and put many in the right. And we, church, are the beneficiaries of all that took place in those two gardens. But it all came at such a high price. A bitter, sweet price. Bitter that the price had to be paid with such an incredible, incredible cost to Jesus but sweet because it was paid in full for every single one of us. Amen? John goes on. Jesus showed them his hands and his side. And the disciples, seeing the master with their own eyes, were exuberant. <laughs> That's just... They went nuts. They were stunned. Are you kidding me? And Jesus repeated this greeting, peace to you. You who are hiding, you who are fearful, you who... Don't know which way is up. Peace to you. Just as the Father has sent me, so am I sending you. Really? When he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of anyone, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of anyone, they are retained. What a scene. It blows my mind now, so far removed, millennia removed, what that might have been like. A body that was supposed to stay dead. They assumed would stay dead. wasn't dead anymore, and it was right there in their room. Jimmy Thomas walks through those doors right now and says, Hey, everybody, you think that might change our Sunday? Yeah, Larry walks in here. Hey, everybody, Doris walks in here. Hey, everybody. <laughs> it changes everything. And don't doubt for a moment it didn't for them. I can't imagine what it was like to see him and to hear those words. A body that was supposed to stay dead and as soon was dead didn't stay dead. And he's commissioning these guys. He's sending these guys in the midst of those circumstances. 
And I don't know how you see this, but I see it as an extraordinary Savior commissioning some very ordinary, very fearful, very scared men and women and initiates an extraordinary relationship with them right there. Did you catch it? I left it up on the screen for a purpose. He initiates a relationship with the Holy Spirit by, interestingly enough, breathing on them. Maybe it's just me, but I was taught early on most of my life that the Holy Spirit comes upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost. John would beg to differ, or at least John would add his insight to how all that unfolded. Now, he most likely will say Pentecost is when the power came upon the disciples in a very supernatural way, but the person of the Holy Spirit came upon us that day that Jesus breathed on us. John's taking us back to the garden again, you notice. You remember Genesis where God took these ordinary dust people and he breathes into them the breath of life. And all of a sudden these dust people come alive. Making them not just a part of creation like the animals and the plants, but listen to me, over creation, bearing the very image of the spirit creator himself. But when man and woman welcomed sin into their lives, not long after that moment, sin defiled them, sin tainted them, and sin tainted that image of them and broke a relationship with them with that spirit creator. With the one who had breathed life, who had molded them and breathed life into them. And only two things could repair it. The story is unfolding and is telling us two things. Blood to forgive them of their sins and spirit to restore them to the oneness that only that spirit could ever create. For some of you, you're thinking like me, when did this verse get stuck in the Bible? I didn't read this thing about Jesus breathing on the disciples. It did me about 10, 15 years ago. I don't remember exactly the time, but I remember reading, wait a minute, wait a minute, hold the presses. I've been taught the Spirit came on Pentecost. What's this breathing stuff? What happened with that? What do I do with this? Here's my encouragement. Embrace the truth of this and then let him embrace you. That's my encouragement. If you've been with us through this study of John, you can't help but miss when he writes the story of Jesus Christ, he's making sure the Spirit gets a lot of press time. He writes early on, the very beginning of his letter, I saw the Spirit descending upon Jesus like a dove, and it remained on him. I didn't know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining, that's the guy. He's the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, those were John, that was John the Baptist saying those, not John the Apostle. But John's writing all that down and saying, this was key. This is how it all began. We get to chapter 3, and that night meeting with Nicodemus. And Jesus is trying to explain to him what it's going to be like to be in this kingdom he's helping to bring into the world and initiate. And he says to him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a man's born of the water and the Spirit... He cannot enter this kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. On the night he's betrayed, when Jesus tries to explain, even though he's leaving them momentarily, he would soon provide a way for him to be with them eternally. I will pray the Father, and he will give you another counselor, Jesus said, that he may be with you forever. The spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, for it does not see him, nor does it know him, but you know him, for he lives with you, and he will be in you. 
I'm not leaving you fatherless. No way. John makes the point in his gospel that what was unique about Jesus was not just water baptism, but it was spirit baptism. What was unique about Jesus' followers was not that they would worship in truth, but also worship in spirit and truth. Now, we spent three weeks in a series called Wind and Fire, and I'm not going to go back and, and take us all through that again, looking at three major chapters in John that involve his last words, his last days, and most of those words are filled with things about the Spirit, a Spirit that would do more than just assist them occasionally, but come to live in them. And here in John chapter 20, he, recur, he records for us when that occurred. Jesus breathes upon his disciples. And then he commissions the disciples to be a part of that same process with the rest of the world. Now all of this has such incredible roots in the Jewish faith. The word here for breathe is the exact same word in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. When God takes the dust people and turns them into living people, the word for breathe is the same word in Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 9, one of the best stories of the whole Old Testament. The old prophets invited by God to this ancient battlefield, which was cool in the first place, bones everywhere. And then he says, I want you to prophesy over these bones, and I want you to say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And as I prophesied, there was a noise. And a shaking, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. When I looked, the sinews and the flesh had grown upon them, and the skin covered them. They were the dust people again. But there was no breath in them. Prophesy to the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say to the wind, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain, so that they can live. And so I prophesied, and as he commanded me, the breath came into them. And they lived, and they stood upon their feet, an exceedingly great army. And they sang, I may never... No, I don't know what they did. You can't miss the connection here. The breath of heaven came to dust people in Genesis 2, and they came alive. And that was extraordinary. The breath of heaven came to dead bones people, and they came alive. And that was extraordinary. And here in John 20... This group of denying, discouraged apostles are hiding for their lives, and Jesus breathes on them. And they come alive again. And they're filled with hope again, and they're filled with boldness again, and they become something extraordinary. And all of this occurs by receiving the Holy Spirit as a person. And in Acts chapter 2, what seems to make sense to me is, is that's where they receive the power of that person. Here's what Luke recorded in his gospel in chapter 24 and verse 48. It's right before Jesus ascends. It's after this moment we're studying this morning, but it's right before Jesus ascends back into heaven. And he says, I want you guys to go wait in Jerusalem for some power that's going to come from on high. I don't think they could have waited if it wasn't for the person that was already within them. That's just my thought. But that power comes in Acts chapter 2. Suddenly a sound like a mighty rushing wind came from heaven and it filled that whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them or on them tongues of fire being distributed and resting on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to do something amazing. Speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them to speak. Power came. 
Not optional power. Power came. And so maybe you might be thinking, Jimmy, are you telling me that the hearing and the believing of the cross and the resurrection isn't enough to be a disciple of Jesus? Saved, maybe. But sent, no. You see, the 11 who were gathered in this room were both witnesses to the death and the resurrection, and yet in order to be saved and sent, they needed the Spirit. And so Jesus breathes on them. That's what Andrew was reading about this morning. Something incredibly unique happens. I wasn't here when it was actually read the Sunday before last, but that's what Brock was reading when Paul talks in Romans chapter 8. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not God's kid. Flesh gives birth to flesh. All of you in this room were born fleshly. Male, female brought you into the world. Flesh, blood, and spirit can only bring you into the kingdom. Spirit. Different. Totally different. You can't miss a connection here. The breath of heaven came to dust people in Genesis 2 and they're alive. It gets incredible fast because of all that. And boom, dead bones. And boom, discouraged and denying disciples. Boom, he shows up and something amazing begins to happen. But not supernatural. No, the power came a little bit later. How does this make sense for your story? And I think it's this. Some of you walked in here today and you've already written yourself off as unusable, unacceptable because of decisions that you've made. And I just want to help be part of the army here that repels that argument in the name of Jesus Christ because of an empty tomb and because of the presence of the Holy Spirit in this world. Not true. Not true. No matter what you've done or left undone, no matter how you've acted or not acted, whether you've ignored this spirit your entire life, today can be a line drawing in the sand and say, this far, but no more. Making Jesus' story your story, his spirit your spirit, changes everything. Amen? If he could transform dead dust and dead bones and denying disciples with the presence of the spirit, what can't he do with you? At a loss for how to respond to people in authority over you, parents, bosses, coaches, elders. Acts chapter 4 and verse 8 says, Peter was filled with this Holy Spirit and given both the courage and the words needed in that moment to speak. Faced with difficult circumstances and difficult people that are standing in the way of the progress of the gospel, maybe at those offices or in the school. In Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, the disciples take those same circumstances to God in prayer. And when they did, we read, the place where they were meeting was shaken and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. Is somebody being deceptive and maybe even underhanded in dark ways with someone that you love and you're concerned about and they need to be confronted? Remember Paul when he confronts Elias in Acts 13 and verse 10. It says he was filled with this Holy Spirit and he looked straight at this man and he said, You are a child of the devil. And you are an enemy of everything that is right. You are full of all kinds of deceit and trickery. Will you ever stop preventing the right ways of the Lord? Wow. That would take something extra in me to say those words that way. Well, the Spirit will give you that boldness. See, the Holy Spirit was sent here not to do, as a friend of mine said, the weird, but the needed. The needed. Love that's needed. Peace that's needed. Patience needed. On a level sometimes that is not natural to this world. It's supernatural to this world. Joy. Kindness. Gentleness. Faithfulness. Sharing the gospel with people that we don't even know where to begin to do that with. All of that, I don't know how it is in your life, but takes power to do that I don't have. 
Acknowledge he exists. Ask for his help, the scripture says. Access the word in scripture that he's given us. Align your life with his life. And the wind and fire can come and be a part of your life. That's just a summary of what we did in Wind and Fire, the series there. And if you weren't here for that, that's how I walk through a day trying to think, okay, now how can I approach this situation? I don't even know where to begin or how to get through this. Today's sermon is one of them. Your preacher is done. (laughs) This week has just done me in. And in a wonderful way, I'm just tired. And if anything good comes out of it today, it's because, again, I've I've stood up here and I said, Lord, sack lunch, you got to do something with this. Something. Because I don't have much of anything left. I don't. But I'm going to acknowledge, Spirit, you exist. I'm going to ask you for help. I know your word says that with you all things are possible. And I'm going to align myself to walk in the way you would want me to walk. So I'm going to walk up there and I'm going to do my best and trust you with the rest. Oh, that that rhymed. That was good. He gives life to people who do that. He gives it to the disciples and I want to promise you on behalf of him, he'll give it to you. The only way that I can interpret what Jesus is doing with the Holy Spirit in John 20 And what we see promised in Acts chapter 2 is simply this, is that he released his presence, his person in their lives in John 20, and he puts power on them for the rest of the world in Acts chapter 2. And you know what something on a practical level happens? I just got word from Vicki a few moments ago that a nephew is going to be baptized today, and dad wants to do that. Didn't know that was going to happen. Can't wait for that to happen. And I don't know what that's going to be like when this young man goes back here and he's baptized today. I know what the scripture promises will happen. Two things. That his sins will be completely washed away and he will receive the gift, the person of the Spirit. Now, I don't know what that's going to feel like. For a lot of you, it didn't feel that different when you received the person of the Holy Spirit. But you will also say there have been times as this person has been with you, power has come that's enabled you to do things you couldn't have done on your own. And that's what this young man's going to receive. On many occasions, when we receive the presence of the Spirit, it doesn't seem like much happens. But you acknowledge He exists, you align yourself with the Scripture that He's given us, and you ask for Him to help, and you then align that, that, that way with your way. Oh my goodness, things happen that never would have happened any other way. Let me give an example. <laughs> I... Uh, I told you a couple of weeks ago that I had a seminar that I was about to give at the Dieter Center. That happened actually two Thursdays ago. It's four one-hour sessions, something that I had never done in my life. I started preparing for this crucial conversations class, which is about opposing opinions, high stakes and high emotions that you have in daily conversations with your spouse, your friends, your family. The seminar was booked. They had 25 people waiting to get in, and they... And so there's the pressure of all that. So I started a month in advance to get ready for this. John Rich and I had gone to a conference in um, uh, San Antonio, Texas, because our missionaries were attending the Crucial Conversation Seminar. I had read the book. I'd gone through it with my staff. So I had a cursory idea of the book itself. But still, it's 12 chapters, and it's just difficult to work through. And So I started about a month to kind of start rereading again. I spent 36 hours over three days before that Thursday And then this happened. It's Wednesday night, the night before that I'm to give the seminar that starts at 10 o'clock the next day. And at 10 o'clock that night, I had about two hours of the four hours prepared. Even with all that preparation. 
And I just couldn't get the rest of it to work. And I'm not going to all the details. We don't have time for that. But I'm just telling you, just trust me, it wasn't going to work. Two companies were bringing their management teams to be a part of the 40 that were there. Just pressure. <laughs> and I wanted to cry. But I didn't. I started laughing. <laughs> Kel will tell you she's nodding back there. I just started laughing, and I couldn't quit laughing for about 30 minutes. And she said, what in the world is going on? You said, I'm going to be totally embarrassed tomorrow, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I really thought that. I thought, okay, God, one of these days on Sunday morning at the KCC church or somewhere, you are going to have me stand up, and I'm going to have prepared to the best of my ability, and I'm going to lay the biggest egg of my life. And it's going to be terrible, and you're going to use that moment to help humble me and to help other people realize you can survive a humbling moment like Jimmy did. <laughs> and I thought this was it. I actually thought this was it. And I, I said, okay, Lord, you, you really have humbled some people in Scripture in some big ways, and then you use that, and I'm yours. And I just started laughing about it. I went to bed that night and set my alarm for 3.30, or actually 2.30, no, I said it for 3.30, woke up at 2.30. And in 30 minutes, God gave me the rest of the hours. And I put them on paper. They went to the word processor. Um, and I asked Vanna White to go with me. And Gail did. And in spite of the worst sound problems in audiovisual history in my life, we put on a seminar that may not have been supernatural, but it was super good. Invite us back to do this in the spring. I got a high rating for doing that amongst how they do their thing. None of that matters to me. God showed up. Didn't make headlines, did it? You hadn't heard anything about it probably until just now. But that's what the Spirit does. He's not about making headlines. He's about giving you a life that matters. And some of you are figuring your life's over. And some of you before it even gets started. And God's trying to say, not with me inside, not without my help, maybe, yeah, but with my help, oh, baby, let's see what we can do. And one of the things that you can do with his help that he so desperately needs is part of the rest of this weird text that comes in John chapter 20. There may not be anything supernatural the world might think of that God does in or through you except for one thing, and that is to forgive people. Forgive people. But you try and you see how natural that comes. He breathed on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And then he said, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they're retained. That's not an easy little text to unpack. But here's what I think it says. Those of you who walked in here and you could put yourself right in the midst of the denying, deserting, discouraged disciples today. And you're wondering if God could do anything with this mess that has the name of Christ on it, but doesn't seem like it has much Christ in it. God is trying to say, with my Spirit's help, we can do a lot. Do a lot. And one of the things we can do is at that school and in that home and at your office, you can be an ambassador of mercy like I was to this world. That's what you can do. And what it's going to cost you is what it cost me. It may be betrayal, it may be through injustice, it may be through um, denial, it may be through folks deserting you. I experienced all of that when I came to extend my grace to the world. And if you do that and you take up your own cross, it'll happen to you. But 
Here's what the Spirit helped me to do. Give grace to people who don't deserve it. That's what He'll do with you. If you want in on this ministry of Christianity, if you want in on this kingdom business, that's what he'll do with you. And it will be, may not appear this way, supernatural in this world. Turn on the news and see what's natural. What we're talking about here is supernatural. And God says, of all the things that you could do, would you be involved with this? I'll help. I'll send my spirit within you to help with that in your marriage, with your kids, at your office, in your schools, everywhere you go. A couple resorted to their own do-it-yourself marriage counseling. They resolved to list each other's faults and then read them aloud. The wife gave her list and read, You snore, you eat in bed, you always leave your underwear out, and the list continued. When the husband gave her his list, she smiled because he had written all of his grievances, but next to each one he had written, I forgive this I forgive this can you imagine that just a little bit of grace probably entered that room and changed the air of that room that's what God wants to do he wants to breathe on you his presence he wants to, to take those dust people and those denying discouraged people and breathe into them his presence and when he is ready and needs to inject his power in the world, he'll use you. I hope that's good news today. Father in heaven, we come to you this morning excited that we've got a young man who's ready to, to admit he doesn't make a very good king. He doesn't make a good ruler of his life. That he's made some mistakes that he would like forever removed and he would like the promise that in the future when he makes mistakes that your blood will continually cleanse those. And Father, he'd like to have your spirit come move inside him. He needs help to take care of these values and ways of treating people that you've encouraged are kingdom ways and kingdom values. And Father, we pray for all of us who have been baptized into your name and received your name that you would move in us with the Holy Spirit so that we would be an example and the world would say along with us, how great is our God. Not us. How great is our God. We love you. Thank you for giving us a son to show you really do mean that. In his name we praise you. And everyone said.